This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 33, and these are the words that he pens. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he, Jesus, put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epapatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. There are three points on your outline this morning. would encourage you, if you haven't already, to find your bulletin. would encourage you to take notes. I think you'll listen better, you'll retain better if you do. The way that I have set up the notes this morning is by way of the three movements or the three scenes we see in the text, I think, this morning. The first is this, the condition of the man. The condition of the man. Look at your Bible there again. Look at verses 31 through 32. Then he, that's Jesus and his disciples, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. This is the condition of the man. This is the condition that we find him in when he's brought to Jesus. Jesus and his disciples have departed from Tyre, Tyre is about a 50-mile journey northwest of Galilee on the Mediterranean Sea there. And Jesus has trekked, along with his disciples, another 20 miles up the Mediterranean coastline there to Sidon. And from there, Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're out of Jewish region here. They're out of Jewish territory, traveled up northwest uh, to the Mediterranean Sea, first to Tyre, 50 miles or so from Galilee, and then another 20 miles north to Sidon. And from there, they travel south to the region of the Decapolis. The region of the Decapolis. This is a group of 10 cities to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And this is a massive, massive journey, and Jesus did not go the most direct route. I mean, the most direct route would have been for Jesus to, to make a, a straight line back, kind of as the crow flies, uh, journey or trek from Sidon back through Galilee to the Decapolis. But that's not what Jesus and his disciples do. This is no day trip. This circuitous route covered some 120 miles and is presumed by some scholars to have taken up to several months to complete. And so you ask yourself, if you're anything like me, why the long journey? Why, why didn't you just go the faster route, Jesus? Why, why the long journey? Well, I'll submit to you that this was essentially a traveling seminar for Jesus and his disciples, specifically for his disciples. They needed to be prepared for the challenging ministry that lie ahead. 
And so Jesus removed himself from the crowds. He removed himself from the clamor of Galilee. And he set out on foot with his disciples in an effort to solidify all that he had been trying to teach them previously. You know, the disciples at this point, they know that Jesus was no mere man. They know there's something different about him, that he's no mere man. But it's only after this journey, Jesus is on here, that his identity really seems to click for his disciples. I mean, they have seen him teach, they have seen him preach, they have seen him heal the sick, they have seen him cast out demons, they have seen him still the storm with the voice of his mouth, they have seen him walk on water. But it is only after this journey that Jesus' true, his real identity begins to click with his disciples. In chapter 8, as Jesus is walking with his disciples, we'll be here just shortly, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And, and they reply to him and they say, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say that you're Elijah, and others say that you're one of the prophets. And you know what Jesus does? He turns to his disciples and he looks them right square in the eyes and he says, yes, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And then Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. It's an interesting charge. This is a pivotal, paradigm-shifting trip for these disciples. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, and he's teaching them along the way. Notice that Jesus avoids the region of Galilee on this return trip. I mentioned that already. He doesn't, he doesn't take the, 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 the crow uh, straight-line flight to the Decapolis. Uh, instead, he, he goes up and around and along the east shore of the Sea of Galilee. A lot of extra miles out of the way. Why is that? Well, I think there are several reasons. First, I think that Jesus was intent on using this journey again to teach and to equip his men, and so he wasn't necessarily in a hurry. Jesus was not necessarily in a hurry here. He was teaching his men along the way. He was instructing them along the way. Secondly, Galilee was becoming increasingly hostile. It was a really hostile place for Jesus and his disciples to be. The scribes and the Pharisees hated Jesus. They wanted him dead. We learned that back in uh, chapter 3 of Mark's gospel. Furthermore, the region of Galilee was governed by Herod Antipas. It was Herod Antipas, you'll remember, who beheaded John the Baptist. And uh, safe to say that Herod Antipas was no sympathizer or no friend of Jesus. The area to the east of Galilee, on the other hand, where Jesus was, was heading here to the Decapolis, uh, was ruled by Antipas's brother, Herod Philip, who had very little reason to be concerned about Jesus. And so I think Jesus took this trip, took the long way because he wanted to instruct his disciples, two, because things were hostile in and around Galilee, and lastly, Jesus' journey into Gentile territory indicates what we begin learning last week, and that is the inclusion of the Gentiles into his redemptive drama, the inclusion of the non-Jewish world into his ministry. Remember, salvation is, is from the Jews, right? Salvation is from the Jews, but the gospel was never meant to be for the Jews exclusively. 
The gospel was never meant to be for the Jewish people exclusively. They weren't called to be an end to the gospel. Rather, they were called to be a means to an end. And that end, the intended end, is that the whole wide world would be blanketed with the saving truth of the gospel message. And so after 120 miles of arduous travel, Jesus and his disciples enter into this 10-city region southeast of the Sea of Galilee known as the Decapolis. And this isn't the first time. If, if you've been paying attention as we've been studying, you'll probably remember this isn't the first time that we have come across this region known as the Decapolis. Remember back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed the demon-possessed garrison man or the man from the tombs? Remember back there, just a few chapters ago? Well, this man was from the Decapolis. It's where he was from. Uh, possessed by a demon there, he hung out in the area of the dead, uh, amongst the tombs there. And it was interesting, at the end of that study, we saw how the crowds responded to Jesus. I mean, Jesus restored this man, he cast the demon out of this man, he restored him, he clothed him. The man was for the first time in a long time in his right mind. How do the crowds respond? Well, the crowds begged Jesus to leave their region. But the restored man, on the other hand, begged Jesus to follow him. Remember that? The crowd said, Jesus, get away from us, depart. And the, 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 the language in chapter 5, the, the original Greek there, is that they asked him to depart immediately without delay. Do not pass go, do not collect $200, get out. But yet the man who had been healed begged Jesus that he might go with him, that he might follow him. Glance back for just a second. Turn back a couple of pages, probably to chapter 5. I want you to see this. Chapter 5, look at verses 19 and 20. Mark writes here, And he, Jesus, did not permit him to follow him, but said to him, this is the man who had previously been demon-possessed, Jesus said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim, here it is, in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Everyone marveled. We can turn back to our text now. This redeemed man, who I will submit to you, is the first Gentile missionary, by the way, Jesus saves this man, not only casts the demon out of him, but he saves him. We're talking about a new creation in Christ Jesus here. Jesus tells him to go back to his hometown and to preach the gospel. And so this man here, Mark chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, is the very first Gentile missionary. He went back home and he shared Christ, presumably with everyone who would listen to him. And so when Jesus shows back up in the Decapolis now, in contrast uh, to the people once, the crowds once, asking Jesus to leave them immediately, now they shove those needing healing at his feet. You catch that? This same crowd who begged Jesus to depart and leave them, just three chapters ago, just two and a half chapters ago, now upon Jesus' second trip to the Decapolis, shove their needy at his feet. Upon arriving, Mark tells us that they bring a deaf and a speech-impaired man to Jesus. 
Now, it's interesting to note here that uh, Mark's story here, Mark's account of, of this situation is the only account of this situation that we find uh, a, a, across the Gospels, with the exception of the fact that Matthew, in just a couple of verses, kind of summarizes what Mark teaches here. Uh, but, but this story is not found in, in the other Gospels. Matthew here summarizes it. It's not as detailed as Mark's account, but for the sake of context, just listen to what Matthew writes here. This is Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 31. Don't turn there, just listen. Jesus went on from there, and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. There's the context, up on a mountain, sitting down. The great crowds came around him, bringing with them the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Mark says when they brought him to him. Who is they? Who, who is it that is bringing this man to Jesus? Well, we can presume that it's a family or friends of, of some sort, some, some sort of relational connection there, but they are unnamed individuals who care about this gentleman. And so they bring him to Jesus that Jesus might heal him. The man was deaf and he had a speech impediment, Mark tells us. He was unable to articulate words. And these two conditions commonly exist together. It's hard to form words if you can't hear words, right? It's hard, it's hard to form words if you can't hear them. It's hard to, to speak if you can't hear. And in Jesus' day, unlike today, there were no modern medical conveniences. There were no sophisticated devices that could be placed in the ear canal to aid in hearing. There were no cochlear implants to electronically stimulate the, the nerves in the inner ear. If you were deaf or you were hearing impaired, you had to learn to live that way. You had to learn to live that way. It's probable this man became deaf as a child. You know, a person who is born deaf uh, oftentimes has, has trouble speaking well throughout their life. But it's said that this man has a speech impediment here. It's possible that his deafness could have been caused by a trauma to the ear, uh, even as a result of a childhood illness or a childhood injury. It's interesting to know that the Jews lumped the deaf, those people that could not hear, the Jews lumped those people in with the insane because there was no way of knowing what they understood. And so to the Jews, if you were deaf, you were in the same category, the same class, under the same umbrella as those who were insane. The Jews also considered such maladies to be a sure sign of God's judgment. Remember, if, if, uh, remember the blind man? The question was asked, who sinned? This man or his parents? What did Jesus say? This man's condition is not a result of someone's sin, but that the greatness of God might be manifest. But that was common Jewish thinking, that if a person had some disease or sickness or illness or malady, uh, that it was a sure sign of God's judgment upon them. As a result, a deaf person was treated somewhat as an outcast. But the man's condition would have made him somewhat of an outcast, even amongst the Gentiles, because he would not have been able to do what, quote, able-bodied people were able to do. But the man had people who cared for him. It's good to have people that care for you. 
This man had people that cared for him, and they brought him to Jesus. Let me pause right there. Do you have people that you care for that you're bringing to Jesus? Just let that simmer on your heart and mind for a few moments. Do you have people that you care for that you're bringing to Jesus? I certainly hope that that is a true statement, that that is a reality for every single one of us without exception. Those individuals who brought this man to Jesus begged him to lay his hands on him. Interesting, this is the exact same word that the woman uh, in our study last week used. She begged Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter, to implore, to beg, to, to humbly entreat. The exact same word here that is used of this man and his friends. They begged Jesus to lay his hands on them. It's interesting to note that the request for Jesus to lay his hand on the man, which was a particularly Jewish practice, suggests that there very well may have been both Jews and Gentiles in the crowd that was surrounding Jesus. So Jesus has, has left Jewish territory now. He's not in Galilee. He's on the, the complete opposite, southeast side of the Sea of Galilee now, in a predominantly Gentile area, predominantly Gentile territory. The commentator William Lane suggests that there were sizable colonies of Jews, though, in every city that comprised the Decapolis. And so it's very possible uh, that, the, that the request uh, for Jesus to, to heal this man, for Jesus to lay his hands on this man, which was a, a Jewish thought process there, to, to lay your hands on someone, suggests that there were both Jews and Gentiles in the large crowd that surrounded Jesus this day. And look how Jesus responds to this poor soul. This brings us to number two. Write this down if you're taking notes we see the compassion of the master. We see the condition of the man. There was a man brought to Jesus. He was deaf and he had a speech impediment. And now we see in verses 33 through 35 the compassion of the master. We see the way Jesus treats this individual. Look at your Bible there. Beginning in verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he, Jesus, put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue and looking up to heaven he Jesus sighed and said to him epaphatha that is be opened and his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly it's interesting to note here that mark intentionally lets us know that Jesus took the man aside from the crowd Jesus didn't heal this man right there in the midst of the crowd Jesus took this man aside from the crowd why do you suppose he did that? Why do you suppose that Jesus took this man aside from the crowd? Well, I would submit to you that Jesus took the man aside from the crowd to signify that this man was not just another problem, but that he was an individual. This, this was not just another problem. This was a person. This was an individual. You see, by himself, this man was just another face in the Gentile crowd here. But the way that Jesus deals with this man demonstrates that he sees this man as a soul and not as a case. See the compassion of the master. Jesus doesn't see him as a problem. Jesus doesn't see him merely as a case that needs to be healed. Jesus sees him as an individual, as a soul, as a person. Notice also that Jesus does not minister to this man from a safe distance. 
Remember, we already talked about the, the, the clear prejudice that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. We saw last week that, that the predominant Jewish thinking as it pertains to Gentiles, first is that they were unclean, but second is that they were dogs. And not just any dogs. What you need to know is that in Jesus' day, like in some parts of the world today, uh, street dogs, feral dogs, wild dogs, vicious dogs ran rampant uh, through the streets and through the alleyways. And for a Jewish person, a pious Jewish person, they viewed the Gentiles just like that vicious, no-good street dog. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't minister to this man from a safe distance. Jesus is not worried about becoming contaminated. Jesus isn't worried, as we'll see, about touching this man and laying his hands on him. Separated from the crowd, look at how Jesus attends to the man's needs. Again, it would have been easy for Jesus to, to just speak a word and to command this man's faculties to return at once. But that's not what he did. That's not what he did. Instead, Jesus, I'll submit to you, uses his own form of sign language to communicate with the man. I think we see here in the text that, that Jesus gives this man four signs, so to speak here, of what he's getting ready to do for him. Look at your Bible there. The first thing that we see is that Jesus put his finger in the man's ears. Again, Jesus did not recoil at the fact that this was a Gentile. Jesus saw him as a soul, as an individual, as a person, and he touched him. He touched him. What compassion. Jesus identifies with the man, and he signals to him that he knows exactly what the problem is. Think about it. For this deaf man with a speech impediment that cannot clearly communicate, Jesus identifies with him and lets him know by touching his ears that Jesus knows exactly what the problem is. He knows exactly what the problem is. Jesus did not regard this man as the Gentiles would have as unclean. Jesus reached out and he touched him. Jesus, Jesus didn't recoil at sinful humanity. He was moved with pity. Uh, I, I can even think of multiple instances throughout the gospel. Jesus was moved with pity and he touched a leper. Nobody would have touched a leper. But Jesus lays his hands on a leper back in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. We see that those who brought this man to Jesus, they beg him to lay his hand on him, and that's exactly what Jesus did. You see, there's a tenderness here. There's an expression of compassion and sympathy and love. Jesus' touch is a tangible prelude, as a matter of fact, I think, to the fellowship that believers experience with him through faith. Let me rewind that sentence. Jesus' touch of this man, I'll submit to you, is a tangible prelude to the fellowship the tenderness, the nearness, the, the, the touching, the communing, the fellowship that believers experience with Jesus through faith. But Jesus puts his finger in this man's ears. Secondly, notice what Jesus does. He spits on his fingers and he touches the man's tongue. This is kind of Jesus' second form of sign language here to the man. The saliva of certain persons, especially by the Jews, was considered... Uh, to, to be uh, of healing or of medicinal power. Jesus identifies with the man here that he's aware of a speech impediment and that he desires to heal it by touching the man's tongue. 
Third, look what Jesus does here. He looks up to heaven. Jesus looked up to heaven because though he was God in the flesh, he, Jesus, was dependent upon his Father. So I think Jesus looks up to heaven here as a, as, as a symbol of Jesus' dependency upon his Father to heal this man. We see this similarly at Lazarus' tomb as Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. I think Jesus looked up to heaven for a second reason here as well. I think he looked toward heaven to let the man know exactly where the power was coming from that was getting ready to heal his malady. This is power, not of a man. Remember, Jesus was oftentimes just lumped into the group of, of, of miracle workers Jesus wants this man to know the power that is getting ready to heal him is not from man, but it is from above. Fourth and lastly here, Mark lets us know that Jesus sighed, or your translation may say that Jesus groaned here. I think this is an expression of grief, first of all, over the effects of sin. Just track with me here for a second. Mark Mark notes here that Jesus groaned. This is not some insignificant detail to the text. This is important. Why did Jesus do that? I think a part of Jesus' groaning here, a part of Jesus' sighing, was an expression of grief over the effects of sin. I mean, Jesus, the Messiah, the, the Redeemer, the one who himself was on the way to the cross daily, saw the effects that sin had on man. But I also think this was a declaration of sympathy over the man's condition, a sign of God's compassion. This was certainly something the man had never received from the myriad of false deities, which there would have been hundreds, hundreds of false deities, false gods, uh, that, that the, the Greek people in the region of Decapolis believed in, prayed to, uh, were, were superstitious of in some way, but those, those, those myriad of, of false deities, they, they could never touch this man. They could never come near him with the sympathy that Jesus comes near him with and touches him. We see Jesus' compassion expressed all over the Gospels. I think specifically about Mark 9, 36 through 38 as Jesus stands out and he looks over the crowd of Jewish people in Mark chapter 9 and uh, or in Matthew chapter 9, and Matthew tells us that Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus cares about our infirmities. Don't ever forget that, brothers and sisters. Jesus cares about your infirmities. Jesus himself is a man acquainted with sorrow and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53. Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Hebrews 4.15. We, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus cares about what we're going through. 1 Peter 5.7. Cast your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. Jesus, using his own form of sign language, teaches this man a lesson about the character of God. Teaches him a lesson about the character of the one true God. Look at verse 34. Mark writes, and he said to him, the pathetha, that's Aramaic, by the way, it means be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. 
One command from Jesus in this man's life was forever changed. Just one little word, just one command from Jesus. This man's life was forever changed. Verse 35 says, The man's ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. This is a place where the ESV, which I love and am deeply thankful for and is a faithful translation to the original text, this is a place, though, where the ESV doesn't translate a word that appears in the original Greek. The NASB catches it. If you have an NASB Bible on your lap there, the NASB catches it when it says this, and his ears were opened, and the, here's the word, the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. You see, the ESV does not translate that word impediment. It's an important word there. The ESV captures the the essence of the original text, but the NASB includes the word impediment. And it's interesting to note that the word impediment, it's the Greek word desmos here, is the word for chains that would have been used to bind a prisoner. This is why I think it's so significant here. I think there is a, a, a beautiful picture that's being developed in the text here. And so literally, the Greek text here says that the chains that bound the man's tongue were broken. That's important. It's important language. It's very important imagery. The chains that bound the man's tongue were broken. They were demolished. And so he began speaking plainly. What a picture. What a picture of the chains. The chains of sin and death that once bound us all. If you're here this morning and you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, the chains of sin and death were broken. And you were raised to new life in Christ, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You've crossed over from death to life. Likewise, if you're here this morning and you've never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you are still chained. You are still imprisoned. You are still barred in under the weight of your sin. You need a redeemer. You need the Lord Jesus Christ to come and break those chains, to make you a new man, a new woman, a free man, a free woman. If you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Christ, I would encourage you right where you sit, not at the end of the service, not in five minutes from now, but right now, this very moment, call out to the Lord. Ask him to save you from your sin, to make you a new creation. Agree with him. Acknowledge your sin. That's what it means to confess. It means to agree with God about your sin. Become a new creation. Receive mercy. Receive grace. Receive pardon. Receive forgiveness full and free. It costs Jesus everything, but it's free for you to receive. I beg you, I implore you on Christ's behalf, if you've not been reconciled to God, be reconciled this very moment. Be reconciled this very moment. Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness, Isaiah 42 tells us. And it's interesting, notice that there's no progression in the text here. The man could instantaneously hear and speak Mark tells us that he could hear and he could speak plainly. Orthos is the word there. 
correctly. He could speak and hear correctly or plainly. No speech therapy, no learning conjugations, no lesson in vocabulary. The man could speak instantaneously well, plainly, correctly. This is a miracle. Jesus took what was broken and he made it whole. And he can do the same thing with your sin condition. But I think there's something much more profound taking place in the text here. There's more going on here than the expression of Jesus' compassion. I think that there is a picture or an illustration of something much more profound taking place here. I think Jesus is demonstrating his ability to heal the spiritually deaf. Jesus is healing this man of his physical infirmity, but I, but I think that there's something much greater going on here. I think Jesus is teaching us a lesson that is primarily spiritual in nature. I think Jesus is teaching us the lesson that he has the ability to give hearing to the spiritually deaf and to set a new song in their mouth. And Jesus can give the chief of sinners a hearing ear. He can make the, the chief of sinners delight in hearing the very gospel message that that man or that woman once despised. He also has the power to heal the spiritually mute. He can cause the hardest of sinners to call on God for mercy and grace. He can put a new song in the mouth of those who once hated and spewed vile condemnation against Jesus. Indeed, he can make the mouth that was once full of deceit and venom and curses and bitterness new. He can bridle that mouth such that it testifies to the gospel of God's grace. Has he done it for you? Also noteworthy is the fact that in verse 32, Mark uses a word to describe the man that is used nowhere else in the New Testament except here. Verse 32 there. Mark says, Then they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech, here's the word, impediment, again, and they begged him, that is Jesus, to lay his hand on him. The word translated impediment or mute there, it's the word mogilelos. This isn't a common word uh, here. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament. It appears only one other time in the entire Bible, that is in the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah chapter 35. Keep your place there in Mark chapter 7 and turn back to Isaiah 35. I want you to see this here. Isaiah 35. Let me give you a little bit of context as you're turning there. Isaiah 35 follows a series of chapters uh, in the book of Isaiah that deal with God's judgment. Okay? The context here. Chapter 35 follows several chapters in the book of Isaiah that deal with God's judgment toward Edom, Egypt, Tyre, Israel, and Jerusalem. But chapter 35 shifts from the theme of judgment to the theme of future glory. Look specifically at Isaiah 35, 1 through 6. Isaiah writes, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. 
strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense. And he will come and save you. Here it is here. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer. And here it is. The tongue of the mute. Same word in the Old Testament, impediment. Then the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You see, Isaiah 35, specifically verses 5 through 6, celebrates God as the one who comes in order to unstop the ears of the deaf and to provide a song for the man of inarticulate speech. And so what we have here in Mark chapter 7, you can turn back there, Mark 7, 31 through 37, is a picture of salvation coming to the Gentile world through Jesus Christ, who is God's eschatological, that means future, redeemer. What, what is spoken of in Isaiah 35 comes to its fruition in Mark chapter 7. You see there? The tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus, Jesus is the well of life. He's the spring of living water, and he comes bringing new life. Tyre and Sidon, which is where Jesus had been along with the Decapolis, are the first fruits of the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Let's look at the final two verses of our text this morning. We've seen the condition of the man, we've seen the compassion of the master, and now we'll see the confession of the crowd. Write that down, the confession of the crowd. Look at verses 36 and 37. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. Now, it's interesting here. Jesus charges the crowd, uh, which the word there, charge, is in the imperfect tense in the original Greek. All you need to know there is that, that that tells us that it's a continual action. Jesus didn't just tell them once. He didn't just charge them once. He continually charged them not to tell anyone. It's a repetitive action. Why, you ask? Why tell no one? Well, because it's not time yet. It's not time yet. This isn't the first time that Jesus has charged an individual or a group to remain quiet. He did it back in Mark chapter 1. He did it in Mark chapter 3. He did it in Mark chapter 5. Not the first time that Jesus has, has told the crowds to be quiet. Well, why did Jesus tell the crowd not to tell anyone? I think he tells the crowd not to tell anyone for a couple of reasons. First, again, because Jesus does not want to be lumped in the bag with all the other resident, quote, miracle workers. He's more. He's infinitely more. Remember what happened after Jesus cleansed the leper in Mark chapter 1? Jesus told the leper not to tell anyone, but instead to go and show himself to the priest. But in verse 45, the leper went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places. and People were coming to him from every quarter. You see, the leper's disobedience, back in Mark chapter 1, caused the masses to flock to Jesus such that he was pressed into the wilderness. 
and that his preaching mission temporarily was interrupted. And so it's very possible that Jesus intended to remain in the area a little longer and that he did not want to just be regarded as another miracle worker, as another wonder worker. Jesus wanted to continue to preach the gospel there in the Decapolis and, and he didn't want his mission to be interrupted. Secondly, Jesus charged this man not to go and tell anyone because his redemptive work was not yet finished. The story isn't complete until the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's only after the cross that Jesus gathers his disciples and he tells them this in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and I'll be with you. Jesus has not communicated that to his disciples yet. That is still yet to come. In spite of Jesus' charge, though, they, the crowd there, zealously proclaimed what he had done. Here's something to think about, friends. Jesus told the crowd to go and to tell no one. What did they do? They went and told everyone. Now, here's where it gets challenging for us. Jesus tells us to go and tell everyone. And oftentimes, what do we do? We go and tell no one. We go and tell no one. Why did they disobey Jesus' charge? Well, Mark writes that they were astonished beyond measure. It's the word translated, uh, the, the, the word translated measure or utterly there in your Bible. It's used, it's used only here in the New Testament. It has the idea of completeness or over the top. They, they, they were over the top as they saw what Jesus had done. In other words, those in attendance literally had their minds blown by what they witnessed, by what they saw Jesus do. Look what they said in their amazement. They exclaim, he, that is Jesus, has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Friends, all is a mighty word. It encompasses a whole lot of territory. While the crowd had little idea of the full meaning of the words they had applied to Jesus, they were nevertheless true. They, they, they had no idea what they were saying the fullness of what they were saying, but their words were nevertheless true. Everything that Jesus has ever done has been done well. It's the word kalos. It means rightly or correctly or perfectly. Everything he does is perfect. Everything he does, he does well. Everything he does, he does rightly. He can be trusted. He can be trusted. Matthew's account or Matthew's summary adds that the crowds upon seeing the man healed glorified the God of Israel. This is interesting language here. These are Gentiles who don't know Yahweh. Remember the, the Jews were, were given the oracles of God. God was their God and they were his people. There, there was that relationship there. The Gentiles did not have that relationship. And so why would they glorify the God of Israel? Well, I think it's because they learned a massive truth that day. And that truth is that the God of Israel has compassion for them as well. The God of Israel has compassion for us as well. It's interesting to note that the confession of the crowd, he has done all things well, that echoes the verdict of God on his own creation back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, does it not? Moses writes, and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good. Similar language there. When Jesus came bringing healing to men's bodies and salvation to their souls, he began the work of creation all over again. 
recreation in the hearts of men and women. In the beginning, everything was deemed good, but man's sin brought death and destruction and chaos. What Jesus is doing here is Jesus is bringing back the beauty of God in the world by restoring what was broken by the fall. Do you see the gospel picture here in this text? We, that is the bride of Christ, the redeemed Christians, are awaiting the final consummation, the complete revelation of all things when Jesus returns and once and for all makes, makes all things new. What we see here in the restoration of this man's hearing and speech is meant to serve as an illustration of God's recreative work in the heart of man. Just as Jesus restored this man physically, he can and will do the same thing for you spiritually if you'll call out to him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, finish the sentence, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. The man in our text this morning met Jesus and his life was never the same. Meeting Jesus changes everything. I mean, think about this, just as it's impossible to have a personal encounter with a Mack truck and not be forever changed, so it is also impossible to have a real encounter with the God of the universe and not be forever changed. Have you been changed? Have you met him? Has he made you new? Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're here this morning and you know Christ by faith, think back over your life. Jesus has done all things well in drawing us out of darkness and into marvelous light. He has done all things well in humbling us and teaching us of our weakness. He has done all things well in stripping us of our idols. He has done all things well in placing us where we are and giving us what we have. And as we look ahead to the future, we know not what the days ahead will bring, They may be bright, they may be dark, they may be full, they may be lean. They may be many or they may be few, but we have full confidence and blessed assurance that we are in the hands of him who does all things well. And we want to be found faithful. We long long for the one who does all things well to look us in the eye on the last day and say, albeit because of his grace in our lives, well done good and faithful servant. Will he say that to you? I pray that he will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Your word is like a healing balm to our souls. It is like a cool drink to the parched. It is the sustaining bread of life to all who believe and eat of it. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you for the cross We thank you for the physical picture here in the text that is representative of a spiritual reality. Lord, thank you that even today, even this moment, you are causing the the spiritually deaf to hear. You are giving spiritual sight to the blind. You are releasing the captive from prison, from the dungeon, from the bars of sin, and recreating them giving them new life, redeeming them, removing that heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. And Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would not be the individuals who have been charged to go and to share the gospel 
with everything that has breath and yet we sit silent? Lord, would you compel us like a fire in our bones, Lord, we pray that we would not be able to conceal the glorious gospel message of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified in our lives as we leave here today. Lord, cause us to look upward and outward, not inward. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the captain of our faith and salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.